Our reading this evening is from the book of Acts, chapter 8, and we're reading verse 26 to 40. And that can be found on page 1101 in the Bibles that should be in front of you in the seats. So that's Acts, chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture, and told him the good news about Jesus. As they travelled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptised? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptised him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azostus and travelled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Now, uh, next Sunday morning at 10, we have a baptism and confirmation service. And it's important to know what we... uh, because you'll see, and I hope you do come and support the people who are getting baptised and confirmed. It's quite all right to come twice on Sunday, by the way, Uh, so you can come in the evening as well. But um, now you'll see when we have baptism that uh, there's a whole age range of people. Two of them are the infant children of an adult who is being baptised and confirmed. The others um, are teenagers and adults. Some will have a minimal amount of water and some of them will get soaked. And you might think, what's going on? What is the rationale behind all that? You know, well, I will explain. And as baptism is the um, entry right into the, the church, well, communion is the church's fellowship meal. And uh, that too needs a little bit of uh, clear thinking, because over the years various things have been added to it, which aren't terribly helpful and well, then they just mislead us. 
So we'll be looking at what the Bible has to say about communion next Sunday evening. But for this evening, it's baptism. And, uh, yep. And um, so when we have um, the minimal amount of water, we use that, which is a font. And uh, when we have a lot of water, we have what I'm standing on. Not that I'm walking on water, but uh, I will next week for the beginning of the service. Um, And then they'll take the boards off. And it's a rather nice pool. I always feel sad when they let the water out so quickly at the end because it's quite a nice little pool for the kids to sort of swim around in. It's very nice and very nice and warm. It's circulated for 24 hours, and so it's nice and warm. So if you were thinking it's going to be cold and that put you off, don't let it. So, now concerning um, baptism, there are three issues to consider in, um, well, when, yeah, there are three issues to consider. First of all is who should be baptised, believers only or children? Now, what age can a child be said to believe? Well, clearly not six months but certainly 16 years. But what about six years or 10 years? When is someone old enough to believe? The second issue is the amount of water that we might use. Should it be a lot or a little or, in fact, somewhere in between? And what are we praying and saying at this service? What does it mean? So who, how much... And what are we on about? So let's take them in turn. Should we baptise babies and adults or just babies? Well, there are two points of view. Yes and no. It's binary. But which is right? Those who baptise children as well as uh, adults are termed paedo-baptists, Pido is derived from the Greek word for child, from which, of course, we get paediatrician, a doctor who specialises in children's health. Those who only baptise adults are called credo-baptists. Credo is a Latin word. It's from the language of the Romans, literally meaning I believe. That's what credo is. And it's from, obviously, from where we get the word creed, meaning a statement of belief, or the word credible, by which we mean believable. So just two positions, paedo-baptists, who baptise children and adults, and credo-baptists, who baptise those who profess the Christian faith, usually in mid-teens, or adults, though sometimes younger than that. Now, the the credo-baptist argument takes 30 seconds. Acts 2, verse 38, On the day of Pentecost, Peter teaches the crowds, Repent and be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, to repent means that you are in a rebellious state before God, that you know you're in the wrong, you're doing your own thing rather than God's thing, 
And what is needed is a realisation that you are in a perilous position, alienated from God, and in danger of permanent exclusion, should that state of affairs continue. Now, you have to be able to understand your position in order to reorientate yourself away from yourself to to orientating your life around the Lord Jesus Christ. For that, you need to be a believer. And to be a believer, you need to be of an age of understanding. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly when that might be. There's a degree of latitude. But what is clear, it is not in the first year of life. A six-month-old does not understand what baptism is all about. It doesn't know the words repent and be baptised. Nor does it know what they mean. So that's the end of the argument. That's it. We're not meant to baptise children. Of course, if this were the case, that's the end of tonight's sermon. Now, more seriously, it would mean three quite unlikely things were true. The first, um, and it takes 30, well, it doesn't take 30 minutes this evening, but it can take 30 minutes, and you can't just do it with bullet points. But... Um, if you only baptise those of age, then three things would have to be true which are unlikely to be true. The first is that for the first 1,500 years of its existence, until around the time of the Reformation, the church throughout the world would have had to have got it wrong. Because until the Anabaptists came along, the church had baptised infants. The second thing is that many of the great Christian thinkers would have got it wrong. Athanasius, Augustine, Anselm, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, Cranmer, Whitfield, Wesley, Simeon, Ryle. And then when we come to the 20th and the 21st century, from the 20th century from that book about Christian leaders, you have, going top left, you have Jim Packer, who's an Anglican, Then you've got to his right, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a Congregationalist. Then in the middle, you've got Billy Graham. To the bottom left, you have Francis Schaeffer, who was a Presbyterian. And then you've got John Stott, who is an Anglican. Of course, you've probably guessed it, only Billy Graham was a Baptist. Or if you go into the 21st century and look at... uh, Tim Keller and Don Carson. Do you know which one is a Baptist and which one is a Presbyterian? Keller is a Presbyterian and Don Carson a Baptist. Now I used not to believe in infant baptism. But then I met and spoke with some of these guys or just observed their lives and read their books. Although I may have initially thought them wrong, going along with perhaps mere tradition... I had to concede that actually they were likely, if they were Pido-Baptists, to be so for good biblical and theological reasons. And the third uh, is that the early church would have had to have got it wrong. Because they would have had to have moved from adult baptism to infant baptism. But what do we find? So we have Polycarp, 
for example. He was martyred in, 50, in 156. He says, for 80 and 6 years I have served Christ. This is what he's saying before he's martyred. Nor has he ever done me any harm. How then could I blaspheme my king who saved me? I bless thee for ordaining me worthy of this day and this hour that I may be among thy martyrs and drink the cup of my Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if he was baptised as a teenager, he'd have to be a hundred, which is, in those days, quite unlikely. But he says, for 86 years, I think he's talking about being baptised as a child. And then there's Hippolytus, 170 to 236, and this is what he says, baptise first the children, and if they can speak for themselves, let them do so. Otherwise, let their parents or other relatives speak for them. And then there is Origen. And uh, he was born about 180 AD, which is only 80 years after the Apostle John, or even less, had lived and then died. And we know for certain that Origen was baptised as a baby. And he says, the church received from the apostles the tradition of giving baptism even to infants. And then you have St. Augustine of Hippo. And he wrote that infant baptism was considered, was the considered practice of the church and always had been. He writes, this doctrine is held by the whole church not instituted by councils, like the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, but always retained. Now, if you're a credo-baptist, it may be that you weren't aware of such um, history in the church and what these earliest Christian writers, who go back to the apostles, there's a sort of chain of face-to-face encounter with Somebody knows the Apostle John, and then they know somebody else who we've just quoted, and so it goes on. It would not be difficult to go back to the Apostles in person. And uh, you have to ask, why such impressive bunch of Christians? Why have they been Pido-Baptists? Well, I won't take all your time this evening, but there, are, there will be, if there aren't already, some booklets available by Francis Schaeffer called Baptism. It's certainly what persuaded me to believe in infant baptism. So, do pick one of those up if you'd like to think further. But two more questions before we set out the Pido-Baptist case. Imagine that you and your spouse are Christian believers, and you have a child. Now, how are you going to treat that child? Are you going to treat it as a Christian, or are you going to treat it as a little pagan? Will you, for example, teach it to join in the Lord's Prayer, a prayer which begins, Our Father? But then, hang on a sec. John 1.14 says, To those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. 
You have to receive Jesus to become a child of God because our default state, the state we're born in, is spiritual orphan. God is our creator, but not our father. And yet, all Christian parents will teach their child to pray the Lord's Prayer and to encourage them to recite it in Christian services. And that's because Christian parents instinctively know that the child is part of the Christian community. And in practice, they treat the child as such. Sure, we all know, whether we're a Pido-Baptist or whether we're a Credo-Baptist, that we need to come to a personal faith and express it publicly when we are of age. Well, let me ask you a second question. If you're not sure about that first little observation that I've just made about how you might treat your children if you have them, where do you think a five-month-old child goes when it dies? Although we're all inheritors of original sin, born adrift from God, I can't imagine any Christian not thinking that such a child goes to heaven. God judges us on what we know. The point being that at such a young age, Christians know that such young children are regarded by God as members of his church by virtue of their parents' faith and are treated and regarded as believers. Now, why is that? Well, that's where we get into uh, Scripture, and we do our Pido-Baptist case. It goes back to an agreement or a covenant that uh, God had with Abraham. God had a special arrangement with Abraham, a covenant. And Abraham accepted that arrangement by faith. He put his trust in God that God was able to accept him, to justify him. He knew he could never earn a place in God's good books. And the mark of that arrangement, that agreement that they had, was male circumcision. It was the sign of entry into the covenant community. And it was applied both to Isaac who grew up to embrace the faith, and his brother Ishmael, who did not grow up to embrace the faith. Now what happens in the New Testament? A Christian is similarly justified by faith. Water baptism, we read in Colossians 2.4, replaced circumcision as the entry sign, just as the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread, replace the Passover as the fellowship meal. Now, although circumcision of the flesh and baptism in water are physical rites, what's really important is the spiritual reality that they signify. So we have, for example, they knew that in the Old Testament. We have it in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your soul and live. 
In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in Romans 2, 28 says, A man is not a Jew if he is one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit. And this is where the word... um, Well, so that's the spiritual aspect, and this is where the word sacrament comes in. We have two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Both are an outward and physical sign of an inward and spiritual grace. Baptism in water is a good thing, but it's of no spiritual benefit unless the person is also baptised in the Spirit. Something which occurs when the believer turns in repentance and faith to Christ. And Christ comes into their life by his spirit. And the Lord's Supper similarly. You can just consume the physical elements. You can eat the bread and you can drink the wine. But if you receive such in penitence and faith, you are doing something spiritual because you are saying by your actions... I have sinned. I need my sins forgiven. The broken bread and the poured wine signify the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus where his death brought about our forgiveness. So in eating and drinking outwardly, I am saying I am receiving the benefits of Jesus' death namely forgiveness. Of course, by stressing the spiritual dimension over the physical dimension in the sacraments, we are making God's promises universal, not limited to male Jews, but male and female Gentiles, baptising all nations in the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus commanded his disciples to do at the end of Matthew's Gospel, just as he was about to ascend. And this is what the adult Jewish convert to Christianity would have understood. Justified by faith in God, received the outward sign of what he or she had already experienced, the forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Spirit, and entry into the people of God. Now, if you were an adult Jewish convert to Christianity, would you have applied the mark of the new covenant, baptism, to your child or not? You would have applied the mark of the old covenant, circumcision, to your male sons, Would you apply the mark of the new covenant to your children? Well, consider those parents. Not to have included the children in the covenant as part of the people of God would have put your children as a Christian in a less favourable position than Jewish children in the Old Covenant. That's unlikely. 
Secondly, Christian parents would have included their children. They had done so in the Old Testament. They would have included them in the Mark of the Covenant. That would have been their default position. They would naturally be inclined to do so. That's what you would expect them to do. They would have needed an explicit command from one of the apostles not to do so. And of course there is no such command. There is nothing in the New Testament which which says don't baptise your children. And so thirdly, and not surprisingly, in the Acts of the Apostles, not only are there baptisms of individuals recorded, but there are baptisms of whole households. So you get the Roman centurion Cornelius in Acts 11.14. Then there's the Lydia, the businesswoman, dealt with uh, purple dye in particular. Then there's the Philippian jailer. And then in 1 Corinthians you get the household of Stephanus. Now it would be rather special pleading to think that those households had no children. And then fourthly, they'd have followed what Peter had said in his first sermon on the day of Pentecost. The promise is for you, your children and your children's children. I think it's almost impossible to imagine them assuming that the sign of the new covenant, baptism, did not apply to their children. An outward sign of membership, of an outward visible church, in the hope that it would become an inward reality and membership of the invisible church. So that's who... The second question, and these are much briefer, how much water? Well, you've got three choices, submersion, immersion, and effusion. Submersion is completely under, so there's an example. Immersion means stand in water and have it poured over you, and effusion means poured out and sprinkled on your head. Now the first, of course, submersion, and uh, the Greek Orthodox practice that on babies, um, that the first first one symbolises dying and rising. You get that in the book of Romans. The second was that uh, what the earliest Christian art depicts, and which must have happened to the Ethiopian eunuch. So we have here immersion. There you have example, that's obviously Ethiopian art, but you go back and you'll find that's the earliest kind of picture of baptism drawn. And uh, anyway, that child obviously objects to immersion. And um, now, of course, uh, immersion, sorry, I'm getting myself confused. Immersion is not where you go, is different from submersion. So immersion, you stand in the water and somebody pours some over you. And that, I suggest, is what happens in Acts 8. So we have the uh, Ethiopian eunuch where we read, Philip and the Ethiopian went down into the water. Now, just in sort of plain, simple English, Philip and the Ethiopian are the subject of the sentence. And went down is the verb. Whatever, in other words, the Ethiopian did... Philip did. 
Now, no one's suggesting that both of them were submerged in water. It's much more likely that they both stood in the water and Philip poured water over the converted Ethiopian's head. And that makes sense, given where the baptism took place. You'd be very hard to find enough water around that part of Gaza to be baptised by complete submersion. And then we have um, a fusion. Um, that um, Now, the Greek Orthodox Church baptises babies by submersion, but I've never suggested that to anybody, although actually that's the Church of England's preferred method for babies. You may notice the font, which is a stone one, outside the door of the uh, old church by the pigeonholes, that is big enough to submerge a baby that's one or two days old. I've never suggested it because I cannot imagine any mother allowing me to do it. (laughs) Tell me if I'm wrong. Um, Now the pouring of water on the head um, symbolises being washed clean from above by God. Again, another image of what is symbolised at baptism. So we have to conclude, I think, that the amount of water and the method by which it applies is variable. And finally, the language. In the Book of Common Prayer, we, have, we read, seeing this child is regenerate, or in common worship, perhaps, Uh, less helpfully, born again. And immediately a credo Baptist will say, no, they're not, they're just wet. (laughs) Well, they've not distinguished between two words, regeneration and conversion. And we tend to get them mixed up. And uh, regeneration is God bringing to spiritual life so that somebody is in a position to be able to consider and turn to God. We are spiritually dead until God, through his spirit, starts to work in us. And that's what regeneration is. Conversion is our response to God's regenerating work. So who's to say that God is not at work from an early age in the lives of children of believers? The prayer is always that they, may be, they, that, that they may have begun an outwardly um, right, but the prayer is that God would be working in them and continue to do so for the rest of their life. That was certainly God's prayer, Psalm 8 verse 2, from the lips of infants and children you've ordained praise. In the words of the prophet like Jeremiah, Before you were born, I set you apart, God says. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. He starts at work on us long, long before we ever start thinking about him. And perhaps most well known at this time of the year is God's um, action in John the Baptist when he was in his mother's womb. It is said that he recognised and responded to the presence of Jesus when he was in his mother's womb and the mothers met. Now Christians do 
um, disagree about baptism, but should it be a barrier to Christian unity? I think not. Think about what both Credo and Pido Baptists do agree with. They both agree that you should bring up your child as a Christian. But they realise that that child needs to come in penitence and faith to Christ for themselves. And when they do, they need to be... um, They need to go public so that people know that they have owned the faith for themselves. They're not inheriting it from their parents. And that's what the church calls them to do. What right it use may vary. But they're the important ingredients. Bring up a child as a Christian. It must embrace the faith for themselves. And when they do so, they should go public about that. So that's what both sides of the debate agree on. So what is there left to disagree about? Well, it's the water, isn't it? And the question of when and how much you chuck about. It's the outward and the visible. But that, of course, is less important than the inward and the invisible. And we should remember what God thinks is most important. And it's the inward, not the outward. So there becomes a point of uh, application. Um, Oh, sorry, I missed it. Anyway, there we go. How do we go about applying this? Because obviously in a church like ours, we come from different Christian traditions, those of us who have belong to more than one church than this one. So how do we try and um, have, a, have a coherent viewpoint that embraces as many people without contradicting ourselves or denying the validity of what other people do? Well, this is what we have done and we've managed to do it for a very long time. We have Thanksgiving services for those who are God-fearing theists who just want to thank God for the birth of their baby with no strings attached, no promises. They're not saying anything. They just have a kind of gut instinct that there's a creator and um, they want to say thanks. Then then there's thanksgiving for those who are Christian believers, but they're not convinced of infant baptism, but nonetheless want to bring up their child in the family of God with the hope that the child will one day come to embrace the faith personally and then they'll be baptised. The third group are those who are quite convinced of what I've been saying and who have infant baptism. And then, of course, there's fourthly believers' baptism, both with a choice of uh, how much water that you might want used in your baptism. And then there is confirmation. That is for those who've been baptised as a baby or for those who've been baptised as a believer. We pray for God's strength as they embark upon the Christian faith that they have just publicly professed. Confirmation, you probably know, is derived 
from the Latin con fortis, which means with strength. We are just praying that they will be strengthened by God's Spirit to live out the Christian life that they have publicly stated their allegiance to. So, how to end? Well, are there any takers? Is it time for any of you to go public about your personal faith in Christ, either by baptism and confirmation, or just by confirmation having been baptised years ago? If that is you, have a word with Caroline, Janet, Rob, or me. Soon. Amen. <laughs>